Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, and we'll be focusing on verse 17, reading from 13 to 17 this morning. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 13, hear now the inspired word of God. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made, in, made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would see, hear, and understand what you have to say to us, especially, Father, on this important topic of being sanctified and being sanctified in the truth. Teach us, we ask this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, just when you think you've heard it all, that the lunacy of this world can't get any worse, someone comes along and proves you wrong. That's what happened this past week. Listen to this. This is a very short paragraph. While talking about the gastro summit focused on food in the future, a Swedish, on Swedish TV, the behavioral scientist and marketing strategist Magnus Soderlund from Stockholm, the Stockholm School of Economics proposed that in order to truly take, uh, take on the effects of climate change, we must awake the idea. Now, wait for it. He's, just remember now, he, what he's saying is this is a way we need to combat this so-called climate change, that eating human flesh should be discussed as an option in the future. Yes, you heard me correct. In case you missed the point, he's suggesting that cannibalism should be taken seriously if we are to survive on this planet. And he continued to give some details concerning how this might work. How did we get to this place in our society? While a detailed answer to that question may be complex, the the basic the core answer is rather simple. 
When you abandon the concept that there is absolute truth, then anything is possible. The late Greg Bonson said it so well. He said, if you deny the existence of the God of the Bible and refuse to accept that he has communicated to us infallibly, then any other explanation for our existence leads to absurdity. Professor Sodolin has proven Professor Bonson to be true once again. But Bonson was not alone in his assessment. One of the greatest philosophers, and, and I would think even underappreciated philosophers of the 20th century, was Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer wrote and lectured extensively on the dangers of the postmodern influences in the world, especially uh, the works of Nietzsche. Remember, Nietzsche was the one who declared that God was dead. Now, Oz Guinness, following up in summarizing Schaefer, he said this, the impact of these ideas on society and the West is that if there is no truth, there, there are no inalienable, inalienable human rights and no true freedom. And what we find today, that instead of being truth seekers, philosophers and theologians have become truth twisters. <clears throat> this fact is highlighted in that classic courtroom scene of a few good men. Remember young attorney Jack Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, pushes the seasoned Colonel Jessup, Jack Nicholson, with these words, I want the truth. And you all know the response. You can handle the truth. The idea is that manipulating the facts, you can determine the truth. <coughs> Another movie quotes sums this point up perfectly. It was the movie Shooter starring Mark Wahlberg. A U.S. senator played by Ned Beatty is railing about the situation at hand. And he says over his glass of scotch, truth is what I say it is. You may notice that I frequently quote from the movies and other art forms. There's a reason for that. The arts reflect the thinking and the status of the culture. To ignore the arts is not only unwise, but downright dangerous. And these quotations are not given for merely entertainment purposes. They are because the arts not only reflect the culture, but also influence the culture. And here is the danger for the church. This is another quotation from a blog called The Progressive Christian. <laughs> yes. I can hardly keep a straight face. The, the progressive Christian. Morgan Guyton reflected yesterday about this cognitive dissonance of growing up in a conservative evangelicalism which touted absolute truth, which railed against relativism. But now listen to what he says. But is now turning out to be as or more relativistic, perspectivalist, pragmatic, and power-driven than the postmodern enemies they once feared. You know what he's saying? The church is abandoning truth and adopting the philosophy of postmodern thinking. And that brings us to our text for this morning, John 17, 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is a crucial text in the middle of an extremely important prayer. 
I don't believe we could overemphasize the importance of this prayer and then certainly not overemphasize the importance of this verse. Remember, we began a study of this prayer. We said that it could be divided into three basic parts. First, Jesus prays for himself that he would be glorified. Then he prays for the disciples, the men who are with him. Then he prays for the church, the universal church, the Catholic church. And that's an acceptable and appropriate way to look at the prayer. But there's another way as well. First, Jesus prays for the preservation of his disciples. He says that while he was with them, that he kept them, remember? They were under his care and his watchful eye. (coughs) And while he was with them, no one could harm them. And certainly no one could take any of them from him. And now he prays as he is leaving them, and he's going back to heaven that the Father would keep them. That's his prayer. Keep them from the evil one. uh, To preserve them and see that they persevere to the end. That's a major focus of this prayer. And it's certainly an intercessory prayer. But also in this prayer, where we're coming now, we get a glimpse of the role of Jesus of what it will be like after he ascends to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. Remember, he came to earth to accomplish redemption, to to live the sinless life, to, to sacrifice himself for the sins of his people. The Apostle Paul sums it up in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we know that nothing could distract him or dissuade him from that mission. But he also carried on the work of intercessory prayer even while on earth. And that's what we get a picture of now in this prayer. But after his ascension into heaven... Uh, with his session at the right hand of the Father, with the work of redemption accomplished, the work of mediation in the form of intercession becomes even greater. The writer to Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25 says this, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't want you to miss the importance of this. I believe the importance of this is one of the reasons Jesus prayed John 17 in the presence of his disciples. We have an infallible revelation of this prayer to encourage us. To know that Jesus prayed for us while he was here on earth. But also that he continues to plead our case before our Father in heaven. He always lives to make intercession for us. And so he has interceded for us that the Father would preserve us, that he would keep us from the evil one. And now he prays very specifically for our sanctification, that we would be made holy. And he also tells us how the Father will accomplish this sanctification. He gives us the means and the method, if you will. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So let me ask the age-old question again. What is truth? You know, this question does not require a Ph.D. in philosophy or theology to answer. For right after Jesus asked the Father to sanctify his disciples in truth, he gives the answer to the question. 
Your word is truth. Now, I'm not saying that philosophers and theologians aren't important to study this in greater detail. They are. But the simple answer is what is truth is your word is truth. And notice something very subtle in what Jesus says here. He doesn't merely say, your word is true. But your word is truth. If you want to understand anything pertaining to life, anything pertaining to God, you must begin with the word of God. Why? Because it is truth. Not merely truth. And not merely a truth. But it is the truth. The idea that truth is relative and can be different for different people is contrary to the Scriptures because the truth of our God is immutable, unchanging truth. It is absolute truth. To deny the essence of Scripture and then think you can make sense out of anything in this world is folly of the highest level. This is an imperfect analogy, but... And feel free to criticize me later. But it would be like denying the principles of elementary mathematics. Denying 1 plus 1 equals 2. Denying the multiplication tables are necessary and can be discarded. And then trying to solve algebraic equations. Or even better, by redefining the basics. Or say, I have a triangle that doesn't have three sides. The definition of a triangle mandates that it has three sides. So that makes no sense. So Jesus says your word is truth. And that tells us something very important about the Bible. Not only is it truth, it means the Bible is all truth and everything in the Bible is therefore true. My newest good friend George Newton says this, whether it be the word of history that is, the things that are historically represented to us in the Scripture, or the word of precept, or the word of promise, or the word of threatening, all is truth. The Scriptures are written, the written word of God, and therefore are truth. <clears throat> but it's not just that the revelation of Scripture is true. It's even deeper than that. Everything you know about God, this world, and reality is based on the truth of Scripture. To deny the revelation of Scripture is to deny reality. If you try to make sense of this world apart from the Word of God, as Greg Bonson said, you end up in absurdity. And the very reason for the creation of this world is to glorify God. So if you take God out of the creation, how can you possibly try to understand this world? But we'll... More on that later on. So we've seen that truth lies in the written word of God. But also remember this. Jesus Christ is the incarnate word. And therefore is truth. Isn't that just what he said? He told his disciples in this very last discourse. In John 14, 6, 6 Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Notice again, Jesus is the truth. Denying absolute truth is to deny Jesus Christ. Now this question of what is truth is an extremely important one. 
Because the Bible tells us the result of denying God. In Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That one verse explains the world we live in today. Somebody asked me the other day, and this is, is true. This is not a, one of those generic stories. This actually happened to me this week. Somebody asked me, based on the fact that I grew up in the 50s, could I have imagined what we see going on in our world today? And the answer to that is absolutely not. No one in the 50s could have dreamed that our legislature in New York State would pass a bill making abortion legal up to full term and people would stand and applaud and cheer. In the 50s, that would have been unthinkable. No one could have imagined that. No one could have dreamed that marriages would be allowed between the same sexes. No one would have believed back then that it would be okay to choose your own gender. And certainly not that there would be more than two genders recognized. No one would have believed that. And certainly no one would ever have thought that if you oppose this behavior, that you would be called a hate monger. No one would have imagined that the gospel would be criticized as hate speech. No one would have believed that a serious professor would propose cannibalism as a solution to an environmental issue. No one would have believed that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint the 50s as the golden days. There were many problems, ongoing problems. There were corrupt politicians. There were sex scandals. The Cold War was hanging over our heads. Every time a siren would go off, you wondered if that was the end of the world. We had to sit under our desks and face away from the windows in case of a nuclear attack. Because if you do that, the bombs don't hurt you. (laughs) That was the impression we got. (laughs) Now, there was a lot to be concerned about. But what we are seeing today is the loss of reason. What we are seeing is the natural result of denying the truth of Scripture and substituting the thoughts of men. The book of Proverbs weighs in on this subject, so that's why I really encourage constantly reading through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Doesn't that describe our society? Proverbs 18, 2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So how important is this question? What is truth? Well, if you deny truth, if you take any other position other than the Word of God as truth, you end up in the category of being a fool. And this is readily seen in our society today. Based on the question that I was asked this week, could I imagine how far we have come and so we took this little sojourn from the 50s. But what really amazes me is not that we've actually got here, but how fast we got here. How can a society built on Judeo-Christian ethics travel downward so quickly, that spiral of reprobation? There are a number of factors, but it all begins with the denial of the truth of God. 
See, if there's no such thing as moral moral absolutes, then you can do whatever you please. Who are you to judge another person? If a man is just a product of biochemical reactions that has developed over millions of years, then there's no difference between him and the rest of the animal kingdom. So abortion is merely preventing a biochemical reactions from continuing. So that's, that's no big deal. There's no inherent value in the fetus since there's no inherent value in mankind. So why not cannibalism after all if we're only just another animal? And marriage is nothing special any more than animals mating. So it doesn't matter who gets married and what gender you are or what gender you would rather be. You can choose to identify however you choose to. And who is anyone else to judge you? So yes, you can see there are serious ramifications if you reject the truth of God's word. But there are other ramifications for the Christian. Most Christians are appalled with the direction that our society is moving in. However, many have fallen into the same trap as the humanist. If truth is the means of sanctification, then what truth is, is of major importance. And yet, what do we see in our society? Many segments of the church today deny the inerrancy of the Scripture. Secular psychology has been melded with the Scriptures to explain away sinful behavior. What do we hear in psychology? You're not responsible. What, is, what do we do? Well, let's find somebody to blame for why you're the way you did. The Word of God is what Jesus prays to his Father to use as a means of sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth is what Jesus prays. If you deny the truth of Scripture, how will you be sanctified? So let's look at this verse as a whole. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Remember last week we began looking at what it meant to be sanctified. And we saw that the primary meaning of sanctify is to set apart, and specifically to set apart for a particular purpose. And in the Bible it means to set apart for holy use. Holy use and service for the Lord as opposed to everyday or general usage. And so aside from people, we see things, places, objects, being referred to as holy in the Scriptures. Of course, God is holy in a unique way, and all holiness originates in Him. But we find, for example, even the utensils in the temple were considered to be holy. They were set apart for special use. The temple was holy. The showbread was holy. The Sabbath, the Sabbath day was called the holy day. And we find references to the holy seed, the holy covenant. And then God would periodically call a holy convocation. And the land was called the holy land. Then, of course, we must mention there was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. 
See, the concept is clear. All of these were holy because they were set aside for special use by God. And then we have the command of God to his people, both in the Old and New Testaments. Be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes that from the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. See, this verse 17 of John 17 is such an important verse because it reveals some specific details concerning our sanctification. See, holiness is not an abstract concept. It's not something that's just hanging out there up in the the nether regions and we have to try to, somehow we've got to try to, no. In this verse, Jesus gives us the means and the method of our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth, he says. Now, you can see just how different an idea this is from our society, which says truth is relative. No, it is something, truth is something that is useful and necessary for your sanctification. So how do we know what the truth is? Jesus tells us, your word is truth. And the Bible gives us truth in very clear words. Yes, of course, I mean, look, we, we know the Bible can get very deep. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Even Peter acknowledges that sometimes when Paul wrote, he says he writes some hard stuff. It's an amazing book. It's so deep, so rich. You can study this from morning until night every day of your life and not plumb the depths of it. And there's some things in it that theologians debate for centuries and will for centuries to come. But it's an amazing book that gives the meaning of life and the truth that is contained in it that is necessary for your sanctification is not some deep thing. It's clear and concise. Let me just sum it up quickly. What is the truth that is necessary for your sanctification? God gave us an essence of it in Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Written in stone. Micah summed them up in three concepts. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus summed it up in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The great and the foremost commandment. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So sanctification is not some great mystery. It is the major duty of the Christian. It is the very will of God for your life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and following, he says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we had told you before and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification. 
Therefore, the Bible is the means and the method of sanctification. The entire Bible is truth. And all of the Bible is truth. Timothy received this instruction from the Apostle Paul in his second epistle. Chapter 3, verse 16. No surprise to us. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's part of what we're doing on Tuesday evenings. How do you change? Right there. It's a means of sanctification. The Bible. Why? Because it's profitable for giving you what is right and what is wrong. Doctrine. For correcting you. For reproving you. And training you in righteousness. It is only in the Bible that we find the law of God which convicts men of their sin. The law of God is like a mirror. When you look into it, you see yourself as you really are. A sinner. Hopeless. Helpless. But it also shows him the remedy that God has for your dire situation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross conquering sin, Satan, and death. It is only the Bible that teaches the need for repentance. It is the Bible that shows men that Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. It is the Bible that says that He is seated at the right hand of God and that He rules heaven and earth. And it's the Bible that teaches us that He sent the Holy Spirit to make holiness not just possible but essential in the life of every believer. It is the Word of God, the truth, that encourages the Christian by revealing all the promises of God. Evie Hill, that great preacher from the Watts area of Southern California, started preaching a message at the Moody Bible Institute to the pastors. It was entitled, What Do You Have When You Have Jesus? Well, he didn't make it in one session. He came back 16 times to tell you what you have when you have Jesus. And so Jesus prays to his Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So how does one respond to the calling to be holy? How does one demonstrate his holiness? Very simply, by being obedient to the Holy Scriptures. Remember, holiness is not an abstract concept. It is a command of the Savior who died for you. Remember, Peter quotes the Old Testament, Be holy, for I am holy. One verse in front of it, verse 15 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You know, when I was preparing this sermon and I came to the conclusion, I thought, well, you, those of you who know me, you know my wit. Some people say I'm only half as witty as I think I am. I thought of several what I thought were quite clever and witty responses to Professor Soderlund's proposal to solve the so-called climate issue. 
But I decided against using humor in reference to cannibalism because it shows, cannibalism shows the depth of depravity one can sink to when alienated from God. Man was created as a special being in God's world. He is different and distinct from the rest of the beast of the field. In fact, the more a man moves away from God, the more beast-like he becomes. Nebuchadnezzar is the poster child. When he exalted himself and moved away from God, he became like a beast of the field. And it wasn't until he repented that he became a man again. The opposite of being a beast of the field is that you become sanctified. The more sanctified a person becomes, the more like Christ he looks. Romans 8:28 and following we read some of this this morning, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you hear that? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what's the lesson for the Christian? First, don't take your sanctification for granted. Be holy, for God is holy. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, and don't take for granted the importance of the Scriptures. Remember the words of Jesus as he prayed to his Father, For you, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never come to that place where you've bowed the knee, Once again, you've heard the gospel message. It's not difficult to understand. You're a sinner. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Repent of your sin and be saved because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Father, we once again bow before you and Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that we can trust our eternal souls to the truthfulness of your word. We know that your word will never fail. We know that it is truth, all truth. There is no deceit, no falsehood in it. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and died for us that we might have eternal life and fellowship with you. Thank you that he is the way the truth, and the life. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation. Please take away their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh that they might repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda.
Are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.